You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Baruch I'm Avram Kivalevich, and this is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm in, of course, America. Uh, Dr. Sam Juni is with us in Yerushalayim. Uh, Sam, I'm going to flip things a little bit. Normally, I talk here for three or four minutes and sort of go all over the place. And then you zero in on the point that you want to talk about and illuminate us and all our listeners. Uh, I'm going to do it a little bit different today. I know that there are things that mean a lot to you. I know you've written about and uh, specific areas that uh, you not only have been a pace setter, uh, you actually have worked and helped many, many communities and many people with. So I know there's topics that are close to your heart, things that you think need to be put on the table. So um, I, I don't want to spoil things. I know it has to do with elements of our society, uh, which are, are, are unfortunately show up much more often than is suspected. And that's all I'm going to, that's, all, that's the only teaser I'm going to give you. I'm going to let you uh, talk about this thing, which I know that you have worked on and developed and spoken about, and uh, maybe I'll interject a little bit. So take it away, Dr. J. Okay. Once again, happy to be here. All right. Let me see if I can be Sorry about that interruption. Okay. So what I want to talk about in general is abuse, and I'm going to speak about two different kinds of abuse, and I'll speak about the um, perspective of the abuser and the perspective of the victim, and perhaps, if I can, try to link it in somewhat to the um, Jewish organized society that we're part of. So that's a big menu, but I will try to outline it, and then I'll ask you, Rabbi, to come in and focus on what it is is important or interesting, and we'll deal with that. Okay, so the first thing, let's talk about um, spousal abuse. Okay, spousal abuse is more often than not descriptive of a situation where the man abuses the woman in a heterosexual relationship. Um, we're talking here, I'm going to interject right now, we're talking here about physical or emotional, all different types of abuse you're talking about, or specifically physical abuse. No, I'm being very general. Any kind of abuse that includes physical, emotional, sexual, I'm not going to differentiate between them, at least insofar as spousal abuse is concerned. Um, The challenge that we often have is dealing with the victim because it is rare that an abuser comes in for a diagnostic, in my case, or for intervention in cases of general practitioners. It is rare that they come in. And the reason they don't come in is because this is something that's called, it's egocentric. In other words, it's not something that they find to be problematical because their situation, depiction of the situation, their understanding of the situation is that, first of all, it's not as bad as you think, and that, second of all, that it's circumstantial, that it's not something about them. It's because X or Y or Z happened. That's, so that's a fairly simple, straightforward perspective, and that's why we don't really get um, uh, abusers as 
diagnostic patients unless they're brought in by a third party. Usually the criminal system, um, occasionally it's a religious social system that brings it in. And in minority of cases, it's the spousal victim itself, herself who manages to bring the person in for a diagnostic. Okay, so let's talk more, and I can say much more, it's more, more complicated um, if we talk about the perspective of the woman who is abused. And there is a fairly interesting literature dating back quite a while, which um, shows that women who have been abused as children tend to get into abusive situations with partners and spouses much more often than people who have not been victims of abuse. And um, there are two basic theories about why this is so, and both of them go to the same direction, although they use different constructs. So the traditional psychoanalytic theory says that their ability to relate or their mode of relationship that they were familiar with and that serves for them as a model is a model of being abused. In other words, if you, Rabbi, relate to somebody else, you can relate on various levels and various planes. And the assumption is that you had a fairly decent childhood, which gave you the experience to have an entire portfolio of relationships. And then as an adult, you plug into those formative relationships, but now it's another person, perhaps it's another issue, but the mode of relating basically follows the same template. If you have had a very constrictive and shall we say traumatic childhood where the only way you had a meaningful relationship was in the context of being the abused person, that's almost the only thing that you know. So when you then do your adult relationships, you model them after after that. And this is not a conscious process. Somebody who does this consciously is much more in trouble than somebody who does that automatically. But essentially, you fall into the same um, mode. And the typical studies that have been done are children of alcoholics, very common children of alcoholics marrying spouses who are alcoholics. And that goes both ways for men and women. But I want to focus just on the abused here and just on the standard um, sexual uh, gender fallout in our society. So essentially, you're talking about women who are used to being abused, um, let us say, by important men in their life and childhood, and then they slip into relationships that get them into the same. One of the challenges of, um, I'm sorry, and the non-psychoanalytic view is basically not based on things that you learned and you're unconscious, just basically that this is a mode of your relating you're familiar with on the operational level, on the um, behavioral level. And of course, you do things that are familiar rather than trying to invent the wheel, so to speak. So you go into that relationship and that feels familiar to you, although it's not comfortable. Being uncomfortable, perhaps, is what you're familiar with. It doesn't matter, but you slip into that. The challenges we have with um, victims of spousal abuse is getting them to realize that this abuse is not proper, that it's not normal, that it's not just or right, that they don't necessarily deserve it. And then the bigger challenge after that is getting them to understand that abusive partners have character disorders. And one of the Aceres uh, Dibros, or maybe even the first Dibro in, in um, psychiatry is that character disorders are not amenable to change. In other words, we can get people with character disorders to act differently if we have the proper amounts of reinforcements and threats and guards around them, but basically they will be what they are. 
So I know that somebody who promises and tries and dabbles and gets treatments and gets whatever will not stop being an abuser. Um, they will, and now it's personality-wise, they will not stop it. Behaviorally, they might be able to stop and smoke for a while, but it's inevitable that it's going to keep happening. So basically, it's not going to happen. Let, and, me just, you know, let me just throw something in here. And again, I, you know, obviously, you know, uh, we uh, this is a, uh, a phenomenon that we are unfortunately extremely familiar with in, in the psychological world, rabbinic world, the teaching world, worlds that I have been a part of as well. And I, <laughs> I, I just want to I, I know that there's a counter idea, which and it's not counter, it actually runs consistent with that, is that the abuser himself often has been abused, right? Even the if, – if, if we're going to take the template of male and female, which isn't always the case, by the way, and I was actually involved, which I'll talk about later if you want me to, uh, a very intense case in Arbesden where it was actually the woman who, who was the abuser. But, but uh, in cases where the male – is the abuser, which is you know, the predominant amount of those cases. I, isn't there studies that show that many times the abuser is someone who has also witnessed and seen either abusive relationships at home or been abused himself, and this has now been what he considers the method of how to relate? So we sort of have two people who are influenced by traumatic experiences in their past. Would you say that's true? I mean, uh, does an abuser just come out of yesh me'ayin, as we say in Hebrew, out of nowhere? Okay, so let me just say that, no, it's not as clear as the other way around, but there's no question that people who are abusers are character disorders. You don't develop a character disorder out of nowhere. Something is very wrong, but when it just so happens, I'd rather not go here too far. Let me just answer your question directly. Often, people who are abusers, it's not that they um, are modeling abuse they've seen. They have been victims and yes. somehow the abuse that they met out to loved ones somehow helps them or they think it's going to help them get over the pain of being abused. So a, a quick formula, now they're in charge. And somehow if they, they are the perpetrators of abuse, somehow ipso facto in a warped logic, obviously they're not victims, so they have freed themselves of the image of abused and now become abusers. That's like they turned everything around. But okay, that is a little bit more pathological, and I'm not interested in, in doing that right now. Okay. Okay, so yeah. let me just... I, I, I just wanted to point out the incredible anomaly. I mean, it, it, it seems like an anomaly, but you actually have both both the male, who is, I guess, as the stronger one, in most cases, the abuser, and the, the female, the spouse, the woman, both coming from these shattered, terrible experiences. Yeah. <laughs> and, and continuing but, this, but, this cycle. I'm, I'm not justifying what the person is doing. I'm just saying... I'm sure you're not, Rabbi. Yeah. So let, let me just add that if perchance it would happen that a, per, a woman, let's say, who has been raised to be an abused person gets together with somebody who's not abuser, she will unconsciously or unwittingly do her best to turn her partner into an abuser. Even if he's not predestined to be, because that will basically reify and make her feel at home. Okay? Mm. Now, a regular person has to really be a tzaddik to become an abuser if he's not. Okay? <laughs> That's a hard thing to do. So, and basically, they will not be as abusive as those who are naturally predisposed towards being abusers. Okay, but that's taking us to like level two. And let me not go there yet. Okay. <laughs> I have to tell you, you've piqued my interest because how, you, how the, the person can actually stoke their partner into 
becoming an abuser when that's not where they were going. That's fascinating look, to me. So I look, look, look. You can have people who have certain needs, um, let's say certain kinds of kinky needs, if you wish, and the yeah. partner is not there. But the partner is a nice person. Says, okay, if it really pleases you that I should wear red socks. I'm going to wear red socks okay. to get you excited. Or if you really want me to go to Kolo, I really don't have an interest in going to Kolo. But they go and they govern. I mean, some people, you have like people who marry people of different religious persuasions. They do it for them. So why not? You want me to abuse you? I'll hit you. I'll yell at you. Fine. Okay, I'm being simplistic. But No, I understand. I, 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 catch, I catch what you are, uh, the displays, the, what you are, the place markers that you're putting in there. I get it. Okay. Okay. So let's talk more. Uh, let's talk. Now, for a moment, we're going to try to unify this, and I'm going to expect you to jump in because you, as I know you as a communal rabbi and as a rabbi um, um, taking care of the young ones in, in our society, that you know a hell of a lot of, about this, not from a psychiatric point of view, but from a human relations and rabbinical point of view. So I definitely want to hear right. what and you're and saying. I, I, I appreciate the word hell because, unfortunately, getting yes. involved in this is hell. But go ahead. No one such okay, so let's talk about um, um, sexual perpetrators, and I want to talk more about sexual perpetrators of young people because that is the plurality, not the majority, but the plurality of uh, uh, sexual perpetrators in society. And um, again, profound character disorder, but in these cases, some of them are actually past the uh, demarcation line and are actually um, mentally disturbed. So not a character disorder, but a clinical disorder. And for some of them, especially with those who have repetitive compulsions, they are actually um, what you would call, you know, in, in home language, crazy. And they have reality problems with reenactments and fantasies that are quite bizarre sometimes to people who are not in the business. But uh, so let's talk about the standard one who's basically a character disorder. Um, essentially, they have had significant problems in their life in their formative life, relating mostly to aggression, not necessarily to sexuality. The sexuality that they perpetrate, especially the forced sexuality or consensual minors, which is essentially the same kind of concept, is supposed to be something that feeds into their aggressive needs, aggressive impulses, feelings of danger, which they counter with aggression, and not sexuality as such. At the same time, their ability to master sexuality is severely hampered or even non-existent because they not only blend sexuality with aggression, which is not uncommon even in normal people to a small extent, of course, but for them, the major aspect of any kind of sexual interaction has to do with aggression. And for them especially, it cannot be enacted in a context which there is a feeling of parity or a feeling of, of, of equality between partners. There has to be an overpowering um, absolute power coming from them. And again, as a way of reassuring themselves, and there it is extremely often that they themselves were victims of sexual abuse that they just cannot handle. So it's following the model of spousal abuse, but in a much more disturbed fashion. And that with somebody who's a spousal abuser, um, basically does not necessarily come across as very peculiar in non-spousal settings. They seem like regular people. People who are sexual abusers come across as warped and odd. And um, I can give you, for, for professionals, definitely, but let's say for a layman, 
you won't necessarily, you as a layman will not necessarily recognize them, but when the story comes out, you say, wow, now it makes sense because I noticed these things. With spousal abusers, there isn't that kind of eureka realization saying, wow, I knew he's the kind of guy, something was odd. No, you still don't know it. Okay. So, let me just let me just ask a question. I know that Please, because yeah. we have, you know, when we and I'm going to tell you about some rabbinic stuff. And I know you have actually presented in at, uh, 2006. I know you presented an AJOP, uh, and this is a paper that we've talked about before. We just talked about it last night. In fact, when we were discussing about what to do uh, today. But let me just ask you about this because as we're speaking about it, it it, it seems to me. Uh, and I think for many people, when they speak about pedophilia, when they speak about uh, people who have a thing for little children or little girls, um, that it's not so much about aggression and about being able to control them. There seems to be this this um, fascination with the with the budding sexuality of a young person. In other words, the idea that this young being is on their way to developing and, and, and like the the magic. Of, of nature uh, and the fantasy about that happening, the Lolita syndrome, again, maybe because I read Nabokov when I was very young um, and, and, and I was very influenced by, by that book. Um, I, I, that's the way I, I thought this, what, what was the, what, what was driving the pedophile was this, this, this sense of uh, fascination with that young body and that young development, you, you, you're not just that I, not that just that the older person could overpower that, but because that was something that was an incredible turn on. A- am I wrong about okay. that? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're wrong, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because um, what's going on here? First of all, realize that I do not put pedophiles, so to speak, and spousal abusers on the same level in terms of psychiatric disturbances. I see the pedophiles as much more as much more disturbed. And what's going on essentially is let's assume that it's the person of the plurality, not the majority, the plurality who has himself been a victim of sexual abuse as a child. What they're trying to do here is correct in their mind. They're trying to rewrite history. The psych- psychiatric de- psychological defense really is called undoing. They're trying to undo history by imagining themselves in kind of a little bit of a looseness and reality testing that they've managed to go back in time and they are back. And what we have here now is this victim is them. I am trying to fix myself, so to speak, by fixing this person who's a reincarnation of me. And then we have a healthy, a very unhealthy dose of a mixture thrown in. And while I'm at it, I'm also going to perpetrate the same abuse that was perpetrated onto me because I'm identifying with a perpetrator. So it's, from a reality point of view, it's a mixture of the pathology of the victim, which is him himself that he experienced and has remained on him, and the pathology of the victimizer, which they are reenacting at the same time. And that's why I'm saying there's quite a few of these people who slip into the, into the I call the right end, that's really the wrong end of the, we call neurotic psychiatric symptom, continuum and those they slip into craziness where they think they're there and some of the abusers will like to give the victim a name and the name is precisely the victim of the past and they it really and they force enactments which are almost like reenacting scenes from before and it slips into a people who are serial serious uh, um, pathological perpetrators which I, I want to stay away from that from now but no it's it's not anything as you phrase it, almost like a perverse aesthetics of trying to relate to some kind of odd understanding of nature and budding and bodies. 
Understand this. Okay? Again, you know, again, Nabokov, Nabokov is a very convincing writer, so this is where he I'm was, coming he from. Not, he was not a student of mine, I can tell you that. He was, not a... <laughs> he was an okay. Ely, he was an Ely, I can tell you that. Yes. But, but, yes. but, but, but this whole idea of the nymph, you know, the, the, the fascination with no, nymphos. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Okay. okay. Let's not go there. Unfortunately, as, as you remember, Dr. Juni, we both were in America that, that pushed forward, uh, you know, little children at these pageants uh, yeah. that made yeah. that made Brooke Shields. Uh, they, sexualize, they sexualize children, which is a travesty and really warps their development. So let, let me not get on, on that, okay. on that uh, box for now. Okay. I, I want to talk about something that I've had interaction with from a forensic perspective often, and that is the, uh, the notion of um, women who are stuck in spousal abuse situations in orthodox societies trying to get a get, trying to get a divorce and having a very hard time at it, okay? So let me just tell you my professional interactions, okay? Um, The Gemara has very specific um, criteria for grounds for annulment. And again, you're the rabbi, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to give you my layman's perspective. The notion is that certain kinds of deficits are so profound that no partner would ever agree to it. And it's almost as if it's explicitly there, even though it's not spoken. Like when you have an agreement, let's say a business arrangement, it's understood that if you buy a car, the assumption is that it is a car, right? And that it really exists and that you own it, et cetera, et cetera. And if let's say halakhically, it turns out that there is no car and you paid money for it, the deal is off and you get your money back. If, they, if it's a car that never worked or never intended to work. Okay, so you understand, there's certain limitations. In, in re, um, spousal relationships, there are certain uh, assumptions that are deemed to be blatant, even though they're not verbalized, that nobody would ever agree to get a partner of a certain kind of status, okay? And they're, they're very specifically enumerated in the Talmud, the way I understand it. Now, um, the way we understand it is that in the era that the Talmud was written, people were not as uh, intent on details when they came to spousal relationships as we are. Okay, so in other words, you might say that the assumption here is the same assumption as a monetary uh, interactions, that it's clear that nobody would ever go to this, and therefore the Beitin can say this is clearly a misunderstanding, and it's not that you need a divorce. This is the entire deal is off because eh, it's a total misrepresentation, even if it wasn't deliberate. If, in fact, it was not there, now if I sell you a car, and I think I have a car, and in all sincerity, I think so, I'm not entitled to that money, if, in fact, there was no car, because you never would have agreed to buy that car. So um, there's a very much of a, shall we call it, a, a, um, an incidental value of truth to something that's recognized by the medical community throughout, throughout, not, not some or some not. If everybody recognizes it, it's almost considered as hardcore as a fact in modern society. And, and my position is that um, character disorders and the type of character disorder that's, shall we say, toxic to relationships is recognized as something that's not correctable, something that does not happen to someone later after the marriage, something that's built into the actual character. If you're Freudian, you'll say age six. If you're a behaviorist, you'll say age 14 or 15. But there's no question when you are an adult and you get involved 
in an adult relationship, if you have a character disorder, it's been there. It's not that it happens later on. So my perspective has always been to explain to the Beitin that this is something that's really wrong with a person, something that's not correctable, and technically makes for a toxic relationship, okay? There are many people who understand me, who have told me they understand me totally, but they have problems with the politics of annulling a marriage. Annulling a marriage is something that's not taken very lightly among rabbis, so it's there. Um, I do know that there were a number of chinks, especially, let's say, in the non-Haredi community in Israel, there have been a number of what I call rays of light and what some Haredim call rays of darkness coming in, where they've actually said, we will do the annulment, and it's both ways. In the case that you mentioned that a woman is, I know for a fact that 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 they have annulled it the other way around. The standard community, the standard Haredi community, and even a lot of the standard rabbinic community in the United States, which is not Haredi, has resisted this a lot. And what I found very exasperating is that they don't necessarily tell me or other other experts that, um, no, we think that women would agree to it, which is their judgment. I don't know. I'm just projecting. The women I've seen, of course, don't, but they come to me as, as, as diagnostic patients. But to say, no, it's not really true, if they said that, I'd be fine. What bothers the heck out of me is that they start debating with me whether, in fact, this is a character disorder or it's not, and whether it could have happened later on, or maybe it just happened now, or maybe it's due to stress. It's as crazy as some Rosh Hashiva, and I've had this happen to me repeatedly, has a paranoid psychotic student, and they try to bargain with me and say, no, it's because he didn't sleep enough, he didn't eat enough, he had a trauma, he got beaten up by someone, and I say, please cut this out. I mean, I would kick him out of class if he was in psychology 101 in graduate school. And he's, so that's what bothers me, because I don't debate with rabbis halachas, okay? And they shouldn't debate with experts the notions of what a character disorder means, how it develops, and whether it's correctable or not. They can debate with me. Would people agree for it? Fine. But don't do that to me, because that essentially is very disparaging from my perspective of the entire rabbinic field. Because if you think this way, I don't know if I trust you with a regular Shiloh, because it, you're, not, you don't, you're not thinking straight. Okay. So Let me interrupt, let me interrupt, let me interrupt no, you for I, one I second. I've got to tell you one more thing. I okay. tell you one more thing. Go I'm ahead. Heartened. I am heartened that some cases that I'm very familiar with Actual mainstream Haredi yeshivish rabbis did annulments. Okay, of course, there's all kinds of politics and mudslinging, and I was had the privilege of seeing some Haredim protesting against Rosh Hashivas in Israel when they came to visit from the United States because they perpetrated annulment. But I am happy that they're doing that. I don't know the specifics of their cases. I don't necessarily agree, and I, I was not called in as a forensic expert. But I am happy that at least they're realizing that this is something that's real and that the medical community has to be given some credit. Okay, go. Okay, well, first of all, uh, despite your um, uh, initial uh, disclaimer about not being the expert in the rabbinics and that's not your, I think you did a great job and I'm ready to hire you as a Magan Shear to, <laughs> to talk Don't about the, to talk about the Musig of Kedusha Tos and Mekach Tos uh, and Mumim, which are some of the things that we've talked about. I'm going to explain what those are in a second. I, I've learned this on the job. Okay. Just okay. To be okay. But I understand. I understand. And, and basically what Dr. Juni, what you've been saying, just for the, the edification of anybody else who might be listening to this is, 
And so basically the way the halacha works is, is that, yes, there are a number of cases where chazal, what they, I'm going to use the Hebrew term for it, afkinu kedushin mine, every time a person contracts into a marriage, they use the magic words, kedos Moshe v'Yisrael, which means, according to the rabbinic outlook about what marriage should be, and therefore the rabbis have deemed certain things, clearly um, they were able to annul them, meaning as as Dr. Juni said, the problem with a divorce is, as you know, Jewish divorces, it's very difficult if the man doesn't want to give the divorce to get the divorce. Similarly, uh, since the advent of uh, about a thousand years ago, women do not have to take a divorce, have to will- willingly accept the divorce. So once the marriage is considered valid, and even though the Besden rules, because of the abuse, there needs to be a divorce, there are many ways that man or woman can escape the hand of Bezdin, either by not being around or being recalcitrant and pushing a lot of obstacles in the way. Therefore, what Dr. Juni is suggesting, and again, I'm just repeating this for people who might not have chopped, as we say, uh, is let this be part of Afkinu Kedushimine, that it never was, like Dr. Juni called it, an annulment. The marriage never really had any basis whatsoever because it was enacted according to the view of our sages in view of what we consider. And we know what marriages are supposed to be. Now, Dr. Juni is adding another thing, that it doesn't have to fit into what the rabbis already felt was improper. It has to do with the essential idea that a marriage is like a barter. It is like a, a sale. And therefore, it aligns to the normal ideas of what a sale is. And you did a very good job in explaining that. However, Chazal do have a similar idea when they talk about physical defects that arise in a marriage. Uh, a, a very common one, of course, is the lack of, of being uh, of being able to um, perform sexually or some sort of other uh, thing that develops, some sort of other mum, some sort of other uh, defect that gr- that's actually an organic growth. And here is where Dr. Juni and the Rosh Hashivas are debating. Is this something that happened later? And if it happened later, then we have to treat it like every other valid marriage. Or is this something that was inherent? So that is just a restatement in yeshiva language of what you just said. Um, and, I, and I think you did it well. What, what I w- would, would uh, tell you is that I was involved, uh, uh, incidentally, in a very famous case uh, with my teacher and and mentor and my um, very, very, uh, almost a father figure of mine, Rabbi Greenblatt, Rav Nota Greenblatt, who ruled in a case uh, that it was a mekartos, and he based it on what he had heard and seen from Ramosha Feinstein. And um, it turned into a very big cause celebre, um, and uh, a lot of it had to do with the uh, the details of the case. And anybody who's listening to this can just uh, it's the Epstein case, and you can find it online. There's uh, <laughs> there's bloggers who have uh, who have written reams of material against this sock of Rav Nota. Uh, I actually advised uh, his children that Rav Nota shouldn't get involved in this, and they should find another rabbi because of the issue. But Rav Nota did rule. Uh, and overturned the marriage based on the idea of of, of Mechachtos. So there's no way she would have ever agreed. So you're right. It, 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 when it does happen, there is a reaction. But I, I, I want to explain a little bit to you, Dr. J, and to others, 
Um, sorry, uh, Mordechai Tzvi. But, but th- I, I want to say the reason is, is because people are afraid of a slippery slope. What they're afraid of, yeah, but is this now always going to be invoked? In other words, in terms of the DSM or whatever you want to say is in that book, what things have always been there? What things are always part of a flaw that no one would ever have agreed to be married to? Actually, I'm going to ask you a question, which I think goes to the heart of our conversation here. As ugly and terrible and self-fulfilling and 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 and, and we didn't want to have it happen in the first place was you yourself said that there was something driving some people to reenact those relationships again as 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 as, as devastating and, and and non-healthy as they were for them um part of mekartos is nobody would ever have wanted this nobody would ever buy a car without a motor a, a relationship that was not necessarily correct from our perspective might not necessarily in terms of buying and selling be the same thing do you hear what i'm getting at dr juni from your own words you yourself said that that sometimes you find yourself irresistibly drawn to this type of person and now you're sort of like playing the other side and saying well but we know that nobody would really want this in one side of their brain this is already a split that i think the rabbis have a little bit of a hard time accepting okay just giving you their perspective. Let, let me respond to that first of all by dragging you into Psych 101 a little bit. I'd say about six weeks into the first course, okay? okay. And what we want to talk about, the way you say it, you find yourself irresistibly being drawn. It doesn't sound like it's you. It sounds like somebody's dragging you kicking. And that part of you that's dragging you kicking is your unconscious, the same kind of stuff that's responsible for all kinds of phenomena that you find yourself doing and saying, whoa, I better stop this. It's like a psychiatric hiccup of some sort. Nobody says, I want to be in an abusive relationship. They'll say, no, I don't. But you can say, well, in your fantasies, in your dreams, if you would be there, you'd be familiar. And the answer is, that is not human functioning. That's not human thinking. That's almost subhuman. So we say consciously, nobody wants to be in an abusive situation because you look at the spousal victims, they come complaining, they come crying, and then they suddenly find themselves believing the reassurances of the perpetrator and go back. So consciously, they do not want it. I don't think unconscious um, uh, wants or needs are counted anywhere. As far as I'm concerned, they fall in the category of the Talmud called ones something that's totally far-fetched, even though you have it in your guts, they don't count. Okay, so that's what I would answer. I want to just say one thing in case we, you know, get too far drawn away and I don't make something clear. The issues that come up in the Orthodox community around abuse and basically the uh, resistance of the rabbinical community to accepting new truths, so to speak, new being only a couple hundred years old, but new, they are... Just to be fair, they are profoundly dwarfed by the kinds of issues that exist in the serious Catholic clergy community. It is far more, um, far less progress. They are much more progressed than the strict Catholic communities. And I have a lot of respect for Catholic clergy in terms of their orientation towards marriage, although not in their orientation towards forcing people to stay in certain uh, situations. But they have the utmost respect for the sanctity 
of marriage, even as a sacrament, and they are much more loath to tamper with it. I'm not talking about the corrupt ones. I'm talking about the actual organized theological core of it. So I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, okay. okay. The, the, the other thing, and again, look, we know that people who listen to this program are from all, the complete spectrum of, from the from Shivish, non-Jewish, Mormon, Catholic. But I feel, since, you know, that's sort of my hat, um, that there's another reason, and I'm not defending them. I'm on your side, but playing devil's advocate, and sorry for using that term, one of the things is they're afraid of is that unlike a car without a motor or, or that nobody would buy, uh, people, besides the, the part of the slippery slope, what they're worried about is that there's going to be some doctors that say this, some like in the Epstein case, the one that I mentioned, uh, there was almost a, um, you know, there was uh, the evidence, so to speak, was going back and forth. I'll bring in my doctor, you bring in your doctor. And because of that, it creates such a uh, sticky situation that rabbis are, are loath to rule on it. And, and even though you might have Sam Juni on one side, but then you'll have Dr. So-and-so, who could also boast of his credentials or their credentials or her credentials saying something else. And because of that, I think it's something that the rabbis are a little bit worried about because then it becomes an area that the Ish Halacha doesn't necessarily govern. And and what we are talking about, unfortunately, is a very Homer Indian, which is allowing a woman, and again, for our listeners to understand, a woman who, if she was really married, to let her go without a get would mean that the children that she would then have with another husband would be considered bastards and would be considered illegitimate and not being able to be part of the Jewish people. So in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a very real sense, and that's part of what the worry is. I'm not justifying it, but I want to put it in perspective because I think many people listening are hearing Sam Juni uh, saying how the rabbis don't see the light and they, they have to sit as, as his students in class. I want to just ask you one last thing. I want to talk about one last thing since you, you sort of... It, I, I need to throw something else in. Okay, go back. Okay, this is a, this, this is a little bit of a tennis match, but go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I just want to basically, you play devil's advocate. I want to play devil's advocate as well. Okay. okay. So I want to just shift for a moment to the attitude of organized religious clergy towards the problems of pedophilia in its ranks. Okay. And I'm addressing both the Orthodox Jewish community, not necessarily the Haredi Orthodox, and also Catholic clergy, the system there. Okay. What I, when I'm saying devil's advocate, I want to say that the um, shall we say, the unacceptable attitude that comes up around spousal abuse comes up in pedophilia as well, okay? And there you do not have justifications of slippery slopes. There you just have a way of fixed thinking, which is consistent with the thinking that existed in Talmudic times, which was okay for its times. It's not okay now. So, for instance, yeshiva that I went to, okay? Kindergarten teacher was a pedophile. Everybody knew it. All the kids knew it, okay? Those, many of my peers sent their kids there. And many of those sent their kids there. So we're talking about three generations. I did not go to a Hasidic place. I went to a, just a normal post-war refugee yeshiva, okay? In Hasidic circles, it is so common. I've seen people come and complain, and the guy says, so he did it to me also, the same guy, okay? And the attitude of the organized um rabbinic administration is what? 
often, I mean, at least until 15 years ago, it was big deal. So what? And I've heard from parents who said, so what? I went through it. I'm a normal guy. And he is a normal guy. Okay? So I'm not saying that everybody has to end up who has been abused at that age ends up being an abuser or even ends up being um, neurotically disturbed. But what bugs me is that there's a commonality that I hear between the dismissive or mitigating attitude towards problem cases of character disorders of pedophiles and the same with spousal abuses. So I have to take your devil's advocate um, position with a lot of salt. So it's much, I think you will agree with me, Rabbi, <laughs> that among okay. the pedophiles, there is no excuse for just leaving okay. them in the forever. And if they're not in yeshiva, you pass them off with a lofty recommendation to another yeshiva. And ditto for rabbis, and I know several strong cases, both in the United States and Israel, where known pedophilic rabbis have been passed to communities that, I don't know why, up north, up in the Galil, down south, they're passed around and they continue it. And the people who manage, shall we say, the organized religious um, rabbinate here, don't have any compunctions about it. Okay, so, okay. Again, so, okay, so all right. Well, again, this sort of look. You, you're not going to get a, a debate from me, but you you pulled a little bit of a sleight of hand here, Sam. Okay, so the sleight of hand was we were talking about. You're right, and it is ugly and, and, and terrible when it happens between spouses. And what you did is you jumped to the big monster, and you jumped also, Sam, to the communal alchet that I think has been admitted by most rabbis that they were in the dark and they were wrong. People like Rav Mordechai Willig and others have, have admitted that they were wrong and letting Finkelstein and all these other people in YU and, and I'm just mentioning Coco, whatever he was, uh, around. There has been a, 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 a pretty much, in fact, there's been a counter movement. Rebel Yoshev's Psak that was printed in, in, in a number of places, I think was a watershed moment where everybody threw in and understood that this cannot stand. And we're not just going to uh, put this people, Mutti alone was outed by Aaron Lichtenstein and others uh, and, 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 and thrown out of communities. So I think the tide turned in that area and, 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 and rightly so and correctly so. But I, I, again, before I get to my point there, I think it's—I think you're conflating things by saying, "Look at these; these are the same ones that are are letting these these other rabbis, these pedophiles, out in other areas." I don't know if I can trust them when it comes to Gitin and and, and Kedushetos. So you're sort of conflating that. But but okay, I'll let you have that. But but let me just go into one other point. Today we actually are are in line most rabbinic places. When I was a rav, that if someone was uh, was convicted or suspected, there was an idea that we that person was out of bounds. In fact, the question was, which was in my table, was can we allow this person in shul in any way, shape, or form? If there's a person who had uh, child porn on his computer and was, 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 was arrested by the FBI for downloading that or was involved even in a worst case should that person be a complete total pariah? Should that person never be allowed to be in any community whatsoever? The question of what should be done in terms of um, social um, rules or communal rules is totally out of my ballpark. 
because that is not my expertise. I can talk to the person himself and I can tell you that the person himself, I'm not saying herself because usually women who do this are much more psychiatrically disturbed than men who do this. Let's just talk about the men, the norm, the norm within the pathology. So um, in terms of um, changing, as we said, they were, they're not going to change. So they do have a predilection, you know, a disposition to get engaged in the kinds of activities that got them in trouble before. And despite recanting or whatever, and even if they're wise, so they're going to try to control themselves for policing reasons so they don't get into trouble, but they're not going to succeed really. Um, So the question is, in terms of punishment, pariah, I have nothing to say about that because there are quite a few people who have vices who are accepted in the community. In terms of protecting children, there's no question that if they are in a position of authority or agency over children, they have more of a disposition to get into trouble with those children than others. So they are a danger. They don't get better. But as far as what the community should do, there, there is no answer. I mean, there's no. Well, I'm, sure, well, I'm sure you have an opinion. Look, I'm, I'm happy that you're staying neutral and being sort of above the no, fray. No, I'm just trying to stick within my field of expertise. I mean, oh. I can go. I can go to the layman question and say, "Go, what should we do?" Okay, I have a good solution. Lock them up. So I'll tell you as a rabbi what we dealt with when we had this and various, I'm not going to go into details because I, I, I respect sure. the privacy of the people, but I have been involved in these cases and what has been determined was, and I didn't always agree with this determination, but again, you're a layman and maybe you could, one of the things was, first of all, to see if there was any amount of regret and some sort of therapy. I know that you say it's not going to help, but that was... No, no, boo, boo. It's irrelevant. Okay. Regret or not, it's irrelevant. Okay, but if that was the case, then under a limited aspect, synagogues were allowing these people to be there for the services, but as soon as the services were over, first of all, it had to be services that were not the young people service. It was a service that they determined had mostly older people. And as soon as the service was over, the person had to leave the synagogue. If there was a kiddush, a bar mitzvah, any event like that, the person had to leave the synagogue immediately after services and wasn't allowed in the building for any sort of event whatsoever. The reason they did this was because they wanted, they did not want to make the person, uh, to put the person in a situation where he would not be allowed in the building at all. Now, I was involved in another community, and there, uh, the lay people, like yourself, and many of them were parents, refused to accept this type of rule, and the person was banished from the main synagogue. And there was one synagogue that was sort of a dying synagogue that had no young people whatsoever. They allowed reluctantly this person uh, to become part of their uh, minyan. Um, And I know you say you have no professional opinion, but we are both of us in the world of trying to help people. Does society suffer when people are placed beyond the pale and we don't give them any chance uh, to, to have any interaction? Is it right that as a community for us to just label them and say, look, you have to pay and we have to protect our children. You're just going to have to stay at home. What would you say uh, as far as that goes? Okay. 
I, I want to pounce on the words you just said, you have to pay. What I smell over here is the, the, the notion of retribution and punishment and just what's just. And I really have conniptions about all of those um, statements <laughs> in terms of values, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. I can tell you that psychiatrically, this is a person who was sick and a person who was in danger of getting people into trouble. So there's no question. So let's, let's say it was someone who had a contagious disease. So I would say, sure, keep him away from where he can cause trouble. I wouldn't use the punishment concept. But the idea of, let's say, excluding somebody from situations that are communal in nature and do not pose a punishment to others, I can't relate to that because I'm not a cop. I'm not somebody whose job it is or whose role it is to administer punishment to make people suffer. What I see mostly is either can we fix this person, and that I have an emphatic no, and second of all, knowing what this person does, trying to protect those of us in society who are vulnerable, and that's clear, keep him away. Now, if he's there with people supervising, obviously there's less of a chance of the person doing something, although he can develop a relationship which will then allow him to circumvent the manners in the area. But I don't want to address the concept of what should be the righteous punishment, what should be the response of a person if we can't stone him, what else can we do to him to make his life miserable. That is out of my purview. No, I, I, you know, again, uh, Dr. Sam, you know, you, I love your exactitude, and, and maybe you were reading something beyond what I meant. All, as, as a rabbinic person and as someone that was called in to advise in this situation, we as, as, as a rabbinic team had to decide what to do, and, and, and we wanted to protect our members. On the other hand, uh, we had our own, there was, as we say, the idea of Chil Hashem, the desecration of God's name. We couldn't, there was a lot of pressure to do something. Obviously, it's all about protection and the possibility uh, of, of a better life for everyone involved. Um, but I don't think it was punitive. I think it wasn't that, you know, we you know, we hated these people. I think it was more, that wasn't the aspect. There was, this, but, but there was quite a bit of debate. In fact, some of these questions were referred even beyond the rabbinic team that we were part of. And we had to go to a higher authority to decide when can you tell a person, you know, that he should not be part of a community, etc. So this was really... Let me just comment. I have to say that there are people who hate such people, especially if their own family members have been affected. There's no question. And look, you can actually speak to these people if they realize they're ill, which they usually do not, but after being hit on the head a number of times. They say, yes, I'm ill. And then they say, okay, so I'm not formulating a punishment here. I'm saying we have to protect other people. It's like someone who is a carrier of a horrible contagious disease. First, they may want to deny it, but if they can come to terms with it, we'll say, well, we're not really trying to hit you on the head. We're trying to make sure that our children, our people who are dear to us, don't get hurt by you. And maybe you're not even doing this willfully. Maybe you just feel compulsed. Maybe you feel that something is pushing you. So at that level, I've talked to patients like this, but my problem is that people with character disorders don't admit they have a problem. I mean, some of them will come up with this crazy kind of man-boy theory that's fairly popular in the underground culture, and even those who don't, they will come up with denial to themselves. 
to themselves. And also, of course, they feel that they're just victims because these are young people who are really predators and they're sucking them in. They have an interesting view, interesting, it's warped, view of reality. And um, there's definitely no change. In other words, you will not change the um, danger that they pose. That's for sure. Let, let me, let me, let's finish off with something, another uh, oh, I'm sorry. I have to mention something else. You call it a desecration of God's name. I don't think it's a desecration of God's name because I think that the uh, pathology here has nothing to do with somebody's conviction or religion. And I say that's just well for uh, other okay. religions. Uh, it's, it's, if you say, oh, here's a Jew that's doing this, that's like saying, here's a grieving person that's doing this, or here's somebody from Romania that's doing this. What I meant... to do with their religion. Okay, what, what, again, so... I thought you understood what I was saying. What I meant was that if the rabbis are inactive, if the rabbis are guilty of some of the things we mentioned earlier of not doing anything, then it results in a sense of the rabbis and the people represent Torah, people represent religious ideals, don't know what they're doing. That was the Chil Hashem I was talking about. And that was the idea. Let 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 me leave you and let's leave us with another actual case that I had some uh, involvement with. This was a situation with the candy man. Now you might, I don't know if you had it in the Chassidish world that you grew up in. I don't remember it in the world that I grew up in in Memphis, in the shul that I grew up in, but the shuls that I took my children to, I remember there was a person there, a nice man, who was the candy man. He was the one that all the little children would uh, come to and gather about, and the man would pass out treats and knip the beckle. And they would have to shake his hand. Right. got that part. Yeah. And, and, th- and that, those fellows... Are, are those fellows? It's not a a, 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 a solitary case. It, uh, throughout many many synagogues, there becomes an older person who becomes the candy man, and all the children gather around him, and he gives the candies out. No, forget about the dental issues and the cavities and everything else. <laughs> what, what, what has happened, and what happened in a certain place, and again, I'm going to be very vague on the details, was that the candy man was part of. Uh, 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 of, of, of a certain service that had a number of children in it as well. And there were adults and children. They're all part of this situation that had been a minion, a prayer quorum for many, many years. Uh, the parents, a number of parents raised a strong objection um, to this, to this candy man's behavior. And in general, to the fact that there was this quorum that was made up of young elementary school children and adults from the community who didn't want to pray at the earlier services. So this is where the school minion with the young children and the candy man and other adults, the because of parental pressure, the school decided that they were going to disallow this and that that quorum would no longer take place. In general, it wasn't considered healthy to have a mixture of older adults and children together. So this is what occurred, and it, it created uh, a brouhaha. By the way, I looked up the source of the word brouhaha. People think it means um, 
come from Baruch Haba. People say that's what they think it comes from. But it created a big brouhaha about this. Now, would you say, as a counselor, as a psychologist, as a forensic expert, that this is a, a, a better way to go? That we shouldn't have these sort of, you know, uh, that this that this type of minion, the way I described it, was probably a bad idea, and it's good to get the candy man and even the adults away and let there be the separation in order for that pedophile, whatever it is, not to sneak in and, and create an opportunity. Okay, two things. First of all, let me just say that candy men are not pedophiles. Right. But anybody who's a pedophile will definitely try to become the candy man. So that's step number one. Um, step number two, the question you ask reminds me of um, questions that come up in many girls' schools, uh, Haredi girls' schools, and not Haredi, Orthodox, Hardal, Datilo um, Umi, but the, the religious ones. The question is, can you have a man teaching in a girls' school? Because obviously a man is predisposed to abusing girls. And my answer is, no, that's a small minority of men. But if you want to make sure that no man will ever abuse the girls, keep all men out of there. Does that make sense? From a uh, modern perspective, you can't have that. You can't have girls totally isolated from men. But don't assume that the percentage of um, men who are pedophiles is higher than the percentage of men who would abuse girls. That, I mean, who, who would basically try to strike up relationships with girls inappropriately. Having that kind of object preference for little boys versus girls is, it's a peculiar percentage, but you can't generalize. I would say keep all older men away from younger kids. I don't know. Do you want to include the grandfathers in that also? Do you want to include fathers? Do you want to include stepfathers? It's, it, there's no line there. But yes, if you want 100% absolute insurance, Stay in your house and never go out because you might catch a germ. And of course, keep all men away from women, all women away from men. And I know certain groups that I deal with who do that. You know, a man talking to a woman is horrible because obviously you get fired up. So I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a slippery slope. I would call it a, a concept that I have a hard time relating to. But not to have older men davening with younger men, especially if there's other adults there. It seems far-fetched. But unfortunately, I think it was a byproduct of, of, of cases. Oh, I know where it comes that, from. That it occurred. And therefore, sure. the, the idea was to err on the side of caution. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and years ago, people thought it was beautiful. When me, you and I were growing up, the idea of, of a child seeing an older person in his tallest sure. and tefillin with a beard... It was, it was, it was, it was a significant. And talking to them, listen, I remember listening to stories that were interesting. Sure. Getting to know people. It was very interesting. Luckily, I was not a uh, victim of abuse. Despite the fact that you said many of your, those rabbi in, in your. In yes, your, yes, your... yes. I was lucky enough. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't attractive enough. <laughs> I was not a victim. It just serves me fine. <laughs> well. Uh, so I think we've we've covered a lot here, and especially as we had a little bit of a break, and then we were re-recording the recording here. But um, you know, I, I know this was a topic that uh, you felt strongly about. I guess the last thing I would say, and I said the last thing was the last thing. Um, both of us, you, of course, as a as a psychologist, myself as a rabbinic figure and a teacher, sometimes, um, you know, would you give us what you think are some of the 
prime warning uh, aspects, the, the, the red flags, uh, what to look at, uh, other than you treating a, a, a man or a woman who comes to you and, and tells you that, what about our responsibility to note abuse, whether it's a, a husband and a wife or pedophilic type of pedophilia or that type of behavior, a predatory behavior? What would be a red flag that, that all of us, especially those of us who are in this type of, in our roles, look out for it? Okay, so in terms of spousal abuse, very hard to pick up because there's a definite interest in terms of the victimized spouse not to let the information out. First of all, because it reflects badly on them. And second of all, because of fear of retribution. So I cannot give you any red flags for that. In terms of um, perpetrators of pedophilia... So let me me, me just interrupt you for a second. When I was a a rabbi in a certain community, someone came to me and said, this woman has... uh, One woman came to me and told me that her friend had confided in her about her husband's temper and abusive behavior, which put me at a very That's difficult... Very good red flag. That's a good red flag. If somebody gives you direct information, it's a red flag. Yeah, but no, sure. But you, you cannot. But I can say in terms of people who are, are higher risk of abusing kids, it's basically anyone who behaves in a manner that we would consider inappropriate. And that sounds vague, but it's not vague. Like, what, for instance, Candyman raise suspicions. Like, what is this with you? What, what, what are you doing? Okay. Now, we, of course, very often these are people who miss their grandchildren or people who have not had children. There's all kinds of, and again, just remember, a candy man does not, it does not mean you're pedophilic. But I'm just saying. Would you say a candy man, a candy man that knips a beckle, the, the candy man who pinches a cheek. Yes. Be more suspicious of that than a candy man who just Death gives out the M&M. And the one who insists that you shake his hand. And the one who insists that you have a hug. And the one who says, come and sit on my lap. I mean, it gets... Okay, that's obvious. Oh, that's not so obvious. It was very evident where I grew up. You sit, come on, sit on my lap. Come on, I'll sing you a song. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean there's something sexual going on. It means that there's a certain amount of, of violation of what we consider norms. You just don't do that. Okay? Um, in terms of kids who are victims... Essentially, um, it's noticeable. There's a marked change of behavior as soon as the victimization comes in. And it may not relate, it doesn't have to relate to sexual issues. It's just either depression, something marked happened. And you say, what is going on? Usually the kid can't explain it. And then it's worth taking some of your life savings out and get a diagnostic done. Very worthwhile. But it's basically just a change, an unusual change of what's going on. And there are other explanations. That's why you need a diagnostic. It's not surefire. There are other reasons for a child suddenly to change his temperament, his mood and behavior. But that is a a, a lead suspect. It's it's not the majority, by the way, but it's a lead suspect. It's up there. So if if some of us who are listening are teachers and have wards, young children in their class, and suddenly they start acting very different, that should be a red flag for those teachers. To- Go to the school psychologist, to the school counselor, or call the parents. Or tell the parents to take them to a physician. All physicians are trained to pick up. I get a lot of referrals from pediatricians. They're trained to pick up some kind of change that's going on. And they'll check out medically and then make sure they get a psychiatric diagnosis. The reason I'm asking you this is because when I did a little bit of public school teaching, of course, I had to go through a course 
uh, in terms of how to respond. And that was, you couldn't become a teacher unless you had that. That's not the case, uh, teaching in many Haredi or many Orthodox schools. The teachers, right, they, do, they, they don't go to that type of training. So I think in some, it is important uh, for them to be able to notice that. Well, Dr. Juni, um, I'm, I'm happy. I know that I, I, I promised you would have your way here, but I'm happy that we did engage in this back and forth. And I definitely was, uh, I, I know more than I did before. And I hope the rest of us do as well in terms of dealing with this problem that ain't going away. Um, and it's, now Let uh, me just add that I appreciate what you brought to the table here. I've learned a bunch too. <laughs> so hopefully we'll see you uh, on the other side uh, during Chalamoyed and Yantif. So that's been Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks a lot, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 